0: Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello, and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker, or movement in each episode. This episode focuses on the idea of atopia, which I have to say is a concept I wasn't particularly familiar with before I recorded it, but it is a concept which I guess you could say intersects with ideas of utopia and dystopia in in interesting ways, and certainly as you'll hear proves to be a very productive way of uh, thinking about particular spaces within capitalism. And drawing out some interesting uh, readings and responses towards the, the process of globalisation. Um, I'm not going to try and explain uh, Atopia here because my guest Siobhan Carroll will do a far better job of that when we get to the, the conversation with her. She is an Associate Professor at the University of Delaware. And and the way that we'll be exploring this concept of Atopia is through the two films The Martian, and Gravity. So Siobhan's argument is kind of that both of these films are kind of fundamentally concerned with atopia. They represent atopic spaces, and they're both um, kind of responses uh, or attempts to kind of symbolically determine the United States' place in a global world. Um, But yes, again, you'll hear all of that when we get to the conversation. I'm sure you've probably heard of these films, but just for the sake of... uh, Making sure we're all on the same page here, so The Martian is a 2015 science fiction film, I'll describe the plot a bit later, but uh, directed by Ridley Scott, starring Matt Damon, Uh, you might not be aware it was based on a um, novel that was written by Andy Weir and originally self-published in 2011. Gravity was released in 2013 um yeah there was a lot of attention on that film at the time so sure you would have should be sure you would be aware of that and directed by Alfonso uh how would you say that name I'm not sure Alfonso Cuaron I'm sorry about my pronunciation I don't know so yes those are the two films that we're going to be dealing with I have decided that uh this will be the last time, I think, that I mention my Patreon at the beginning of an episode because, I don't know, I think it's probably annoying for you if you listen to every episode and it kind of stops the episode, you know, getting started. Um, doesn't mean I'm not going to mention it at all during the episode, but I'm just going to stop going on about it at the beginning. But I just wanted to say um, this time, because uh, I thought it was worth mentioning, there aren't like that many people on the Patreon at the moment. So I just want to say if you've got um particular things that you think would be fun for me to cover that you'd like to hear me cover that aren't likely to get touched in the in the main series, um there's few enough people at the moment that I'm probably going to be able to do that. So yeah, just to say if you want to get in touch with me on utopian horizons pod at gmail.com, tweet beyond utopian horizons uh dm me message me on the discord which you can find the link to on the twitter as well and just let me know if you you think hey i would like you to do an episode on this is that something you can do and um yeah i can let you know while i am mentioning the patreon um, it's at patreon.com slash utopian horizons and there you can get access to a whole load of bonus episodes that i'm putting out regularly I just released one on Capitalist... Uh, I'm going through Capitalist Realism, Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, chapter by chapter. So I just released an episode on Chapter 3. Um, there's episodes on Red Dead Redemption. Uh, I'm working my way through the TV series Psycho Pass. Uh, I've done, like, f- maybe four episodes of that. I've done an episode on the concept of estrangement. So, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff on there. Again, you can just have a browse through uh, on the Patreon and see if there's anything that, that takes your fancy um and yeah the the support on there um does make a big difference to me so i appreciate everyone that's um supporting me and it'd be cool if you could check it out so that's all i wanted to say about that onto my conversation with siobhan joining me now is siobhan Carroll. she is an associate professor at the university of delaware uh and author of the book an empire of air and water and thank you very much for joining me siobhan
1: well thank you very much for having me paul
0: So, uh, you have come uh, onto the podcast today to talk about a couple of films which are um, The Martian and Gravity. I think... Just before we get into to talking about these films, I'll give a brief synopsis of each of the films just so anybody who hasn't seen them kind of kind of knows where they are. So The Martian is about an astronaut who is on a mission with his team on Mars and ends up getting stranded there by himself, and the film is about his attempts to to survive while the Earth kind of mounts a, a rescue mission to get him back. Uh, Gravity is about An astronaut who is caught up in a disaster while working in space and again ends up having to try to survive in, in space and find a way to get back to Earth. That's a very brief, uh, overview of the two films and we'll maybe get into more detail as and when we need to, but that, that gives you a a rough idea. So the, the first thing I want to ask you about is, um, so I've, I've read an essay that you've, you've written about these two films and sort of key to your the way that you read these films is the idea of Atopia, which I have to say is, is not one I was particularly familiar with before uh being introduced to it in, in this essay. So I, I wondered if you could explain um for people what what that term means that where that comes from and what you're referring to when you use that word
1: absolutely paul and thank you for those uh, synopses of the film so this is uh, i guess the spoiler moment where anyone who wants to go out and watch them on dvd gets to pause the podcast and do so and i'll be talking in a little bit about why these stranded astronauts why now why are these movies preoccupied with them but the idea of atopia is going to be key to explaining this so Many of your po- your podcast listeners will, of course, be interested in the idea of utopia and perhaps also dystopia. Mm-hmm. So, atopia literally means the absence of place. And you'll come across this idea in philosophy and in architecture. Uh, um, it's been talked about by people like Marc Auger, an anthropologist, um, by the Vittorio Gregotti, And they sometimes will also refer to it as the concept of non-place. And what it is uh, when you read a lot of theory about atopia is a it is the absence of place. So if you think about place as being a small bounded location to which people are very attached, right? Mm-hmm. So this might be a formal place. It could be your childhood home for a lot of people, Uh the, the house or the original dwelling place is a model for how people think about place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it could also be, you know, a, a blackberry patch where you went and you picked blackberries as a kid and you had a very particular association with it. Whenever you think of, of a distinct location that has shaped your identity, you go to these these particular types of locations. And of course, for a lot of theorists coming out of Europe, they're thinking about Uh, very traditional towns, places like the Market Square, and the kind of identity that that gave not only uh, individuals, but also the local community. And so in the theories of of people like Marc Auger, what happens when your world gets globalized is, you know, the developers come in and they bulldoze your BlackBerry patch, your childhood home, and your local market. And instead they put up a shopping mall, which when you go into it, rather than attaching you to a very particular location with a particular history, you're walking into the same shopping mall with the same array of, of stores that you're going to encounter, not only elsewhere in your nation, but possibly elsewhere in the globe, right? Starbucks, you're going to run into in more than one location. So you could be anywhere. And that sense of anywhere is what... Uh, Auger and others are trying to get at with the idea of atopia. So it is a kind of global space, a construction of commercial internationalism. And other. I mentioned the shopping mall, but you've also got the global superstore, the airport, roads, and these are constructions that impose on the local landscape a form of settlement based on something other than the idea of place. So it's top down rather than bottom up is another way of thinking about it in terms of constructing people's relationship to their environment. And of course, Auger and others are concerned about atopia because of they see it as destroying people's connections both to their own identity and to others. So within these spaces, one is reoriented in instead of connecting to people from your local town or village. Instead, you're in dialogue with this global world of commercial transaction so think about the airport when you pass through it mm-hmm. you are going first of all you're you're not having a personal conversation usually with the tsa agent or with anyone that you're actually formally interacting with uh, you stop maybe and you get a coffee at the starbucks and you have this very impersonal interaction with the person you're, you're talking with in which you show them proofs of your identity, right? Your passport, your credit card, you show them proofs of your membership in this global commercial world that gives you then the ability to buy your coffee, that gives you the ability to pass through the airport, So Auger refers to this idea of solitary contractuality. Uh, He observes that we are getting more and more isolated in such spaces, where instead of having to get to know your neighbors, in fact, we end up walking through these globalized non-places secure in our own utter isolation. Providing you have your passport, providing you have your credit card, these items of membership you really don't have to talk to anybody you don't have to have a personal uh interaction with anyone your relationship is not with your surrounding community it is with this this abstract global uh atopia
0: so because I, I guess even even if you might have a conversation for example At the Starbucks with the person working there, they probably like they're supposed to do like that's been defined, like how they're supposed to interact with the customer and potentially like you're supposed to say this thing to them and then do this thing and this thing.
1: And then you forget about each other, right? And you go away and you never have to interact with that person again. So. You can imagine that again in the sort of the traditional market square that critics like O. J. are talking about or imagining as their their alternative to this, you'd at least have to inquire after somebody's relatives. It would be a, a an interaction that would be repeated, but would be more you would have to know something and would learn something about that person you're interacting with. Whereas not in the airport. Not yeah. unless you work there, I
0: suppose. Yeah, and they would potentially yeah, in the local market wherever they would Probably know who you are, and you might know who they are.
1: Or you would be a stranger and they'd have to find out about. Okay, sure. Something like that. Mm -hmm. So, now the word atopia also applies, and this is crucial to the essay, to natural non-places. And this actually is sort of an idea that I've explored in the book. You mentioned an empire of air and water, which as the title suggests, is really concerned with how people are imagining in the 19th century natural environments. Mm-hmm. So, in particular, I was interested in that book with the space of the ocean, which, as many uh, theorists of international law have discussed, is the original global space before we have your airports, before we have your global shop shopping malls you if you want to interact with the world and you're in Britain or you're in the United states you're or Germany, right anywhere that's landlocked sooner or later, you're going to have to interact with the space of the ocean and whereas everywhere on land you can build something right to defend your power to show your identity you can build monuments you can bury your dead Uh, you can using john locke's idea of property if you put your own labor into the earth into the soil that you're working you can claim it's your property when you get onto the ocean things are a lot more fluid quite literally (laughs) so yeah so on one hand, you have this space which is really crucial to any kind of international trade, um, and particularly in Britain, which is the the nation I'm preoccupied with. In an empire of air and water, of course, you've got an island nation, and it's also crucial to things like national defense and identity, etc. Mm-hmm. So you've got to interact with the ocean, but you can't build on it. So how do you? So this becomes a very problematic space. Right? You can't convert the space that you need into, in, into national property. And therefore, in particular, in 18th and 19th century texts, the ocean becomes a useful place for various writers to articulate their anxieties about engaging with the globe. And this that is to say the space of the global, the space of international commerce. And you can go all the way back to something like Robinson Crusoe, right? And think mm-hmm. about how in that text... A lot of people forget that the whole reason Robinson Crusoe ends up shipwrecked on the island in the first place is because he needs to go to sea because he wants to participate in the African slave trade as a slaver. Good going for you, Robinson Crusoe. Not. So he wants access to this world, so therefore he goes to sea. But you also have texts like... Uh, Thomas De Quincey's memoir, memoirs of an English opium eater, right, where he has these long sequences in which he is uh, walking the streets of London, drug-addled, uh, and having visions of global commerce, Britain's connection to the Orient, uh, and and he's seeing this as an ocean that he's wading through. Except the ocean is also the streets of London, and so he starts describing. He's this vision of, of oceans full of the, the faces of the crowd that he's walking across, and he's describing buildings and walking through streets as though he's navigating, searching for the Northwest Passage. Right. So the North Pole is also one of these atopic spaces that gets in, natural atopic spaces that gets invoked here. So when we talk about natural atopias, we're talking about uh, areas of the world that can't be colonized. They can't be built on and turned into domestic place. They're going to be inhospitable, unpleasant to be in, and hostile to human survival, such that like uh, the global atopia, but in a much more literal way, they also threaten and endanger human identity at the individual and the communal level. So think about all the stories that you've encountered. Uh, in which people are at sea in a tiny boat, dying of thirst, or are you know on a trek to the pole and uh, encountering brutal conditions, or trapped underground, or perhaps up in the atmosphere. All of these are areas of our globe which you can't really build on or certainly in the 19th century, transform into habitable, envir- habitable environments and therefore place very easily. And so one of the things you see is this sort of metaphorical transition where natural atopias come to be identified with uh, man-made atopias in sequences like the De Quincey one that I just mentioned, in which the, the far more abstract threat of the shopping mall comes to be intertwined or projected onto uh, the threat of the natural atopia, such as the ocean, such as the the polar space, etc. So this is, of course, important to, for science fiction in general, because science fiction is a genre that Uh, was born arguably in the 18th and 19th centuries and is very much preoccupied with these spaces. Of course, outer space is the great atopia for contemporary speculative fiction, but Mm. if you go back in time, think of Frankenstein and the Arctic expedition that it opens with and Victor Frankenstein and the monster discussing the future of the human race, the entire globe on packs of ice. Right, that's a very important setting for those kinds of conversations in the 19th century. Hmm. So now we get to the stranded astronauts. Because as I just mentioned, you tend to see, if you see this intertwining of natural atopia and, uh, and man made atopia, then it's fair to say, and my argument is in that article that you referenced, Paul that when we see a surge of films that are preoccupied with people in danger in natural atopias, in some way, these films or these stories are also engaged with people's contemporary anxieties about the globe, about man-made atopia, and about how people feel they are surviving or not surviving uh, in conditions of contemporary globalization. So that basically is my argument about these stranded astronaut movies. I point out that we've actually had a wave of stranded and or endangered American workers at sea movies too, right? We've had In the Heart of the Sea, we've had um, I think I give a whole list of them at the beginning. All is Lost, Captain Phillips, Deepwater Horizon. There's been this whole, this string of movies in which Americans right? Uh, who usually are at sea for reasons of work or retirement, this is their life now, Uh, find themselves endangered by this natural utopia. And I suggest that, well, again, obviously coming from my perspective, I look at that and I think, well, this is an anxiety about where Americans are now in terms of their relationship to globalization. Uh, So all the anxieties that we're seeing in the newspapers in the early 2000s, around before and after the financial crisis, and that have arguably, you know, triggered a resurgent populism that we've seen in the election of people like Donald Trump, all of these anxieties can be traced through uh, the recent movies in which people are struggling against natural environments uh, that are identified with global spaces so i t- I set up my argument about stranded astronaut- astronauts by saying these are really shipwreck movies in space yeah. and that's the the anxiety that's being explored there
0: okay so we yeah so I think that that definitely makes sense of what you're explaining so this to so these um, atopic spaces in terms of atopic spaces that come out of globalization they uh, are a kind of anxieties about those kind of post two thousand eight in particular, perhaps with the with the um, crisis and the political reactions to that. Those are the kind of anxieties that you, you think are being explored in these uh, these movies, uh, The Martian and Gravity, for example.
1: Indeed, and I'm sure some of your your listeners who are who've seen the movies and are interested in them, particularly, be curious about. Volkay okay, in that case where is my support for that in talking about these particular films? I think people can see just off the bat how these films are certainly showing people in danger in in atopic spaces, that is say hostile natural environments that are also yeah. kind of oceanic. But how do we get to thinking we're specifically when we think about these films interactions with the idea of globalization.
0: Sure.
1: And one of the questions that you forwarded to me, Paul, um, regarding my article, was about the backstory of. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Andy the, B. Yeah, I found that really that was really interesting and and illuminating. I thought when it comes to, yeah, because there were certain things that watching the film I kind of picked up on, I guess, in terms of the film's ideological underpinnings, and then because I read your article after I'd watched the film, mm-hmm. and then yeah, hearing the backstory of the guy who wrote the story that the Martian is based on that kind of um, yeah a lot of that stuff really made sense so yeah if you if you could explain a bit about that that would be fantastic
1: um, gladly well first of all for everyone who's read the Martian you've probably encountered even in the book flap if you read it in traditional format or perhaps uh, in some of the the webpage information if you found it online, This is a a great story of self-publishing success, right? Andy Weir's text uh, is one of the few books that has successfully made the transition for something that was originally published by himself for fun uh, into becoming a major bestseller. So good for him. But one of the Mm -hmm. things I found really interesting when I was researching this particular article is the way that Andy Weir himself talked about Mark Watney, the character in the book and then the film, uh, but also the way that his own backstory, Andy Weir's own backstory was presented in articles. So I'll give you some of that information. So one of the things that you'll see if you Google his name and start reading uh, things like his interview in the Telegraph is that his story becomes intertwined with that of Watney. So Andy Weir... One of the things you'll learn when you read these these interviews is that he's a computer programmer who at 15 got his first job working in a national laboratory. The Telegraph reports that he was one of then 18 odd employees made redundant when internet provider AOL merged with the web browser creator Netscape, right? So he received a net, a severance package from Netscape that was generous enough. And then the journalist said he decided to, quote, take a break from work and write a couple novels until he decided to quote stop watching daytime tv and went back to work in the software industry. Now, as someone who's a writer myself, I must I came across these lines and really paused because if you if you've done any kind of writing even writing a fiction, you know, this is not exactly a a hol- this is not a holiday, right? This is something where <laughs> you're having to get up Uh, You know, early in the morning and working for hours at something you don't know that anyone's going to see and you're typing in front of a screen. So I was really struck by the way that the interviewers, and presumably Weir himself, were presenting this as a kind of recreational activity that was made possible by his own redundancy, so this experience that a lot of employees would find traumatic, right—the losing of a job—here becomes presented as a kind of opportunity that allows him to pursue a different kind of work that is merely a hobby. And then the telegraph later says that he decides to return, right? So the emphasis is all on his own, uh, his own agency and initiative. Right, it mm. wasn't a bad thing. He was laid off. It gave him this opportunity. It was fun, and then he gets to decide to go back to work. So this is a very different experience than most people's, I think, when we encounter uh, the specter of being laid off. Now yeah. you get to these other the other, the parts where he discusses the character Mark Watney. Now, preface this by saying that a lot of people, both online and then around the film, noted that Watney was relentlessly cheerful. And it was yeah, so he's,
0: he's constantly making jokes and kind of trying to, you know, being upbeat about his situation.
1: Indeed. And of course this is fun and this is entertaining. And I think it's one of the reasons that the book is very popular, but again, when you look at uh, Weir's interviews, he notes, he makes it very explicit that this is part of his intention. He wanted to avoid writing a dark and depressing tale of a man's struggle, struggle with crippling loneliness and constant stress. And he explains Watney's resilience with reference to the job market, explaining that he wouldn't experience loneliness and stress because he is, and this is a quote, chosen to be on a manned Mars mission. So he's not just some guy off the street. He beat tens of thousands of other people for that position. All right, Mm -hmm. so we have this language of competition now for jobs. So the reason that uh, Watney is so upbeat and resilient is because he's such a successful competitor for this very prestigious job. And, of course, he's talking about the job of being an astronaut, but he could also be talking about the job of being a an elite software engineer, at least as Weir is constructing it in the descriptions where he's presenting himself elsewhere in the same interviews. So one of the things that struck me also about these interviews was the language that Weir was using. So when he's describing... The Watney being selected, uh, and to endure loneliness and stress, and constant stress. I thought, oh, I've seen these particular phrases before. And as a science fiction writer, right, in my spare time, uh, I know that they're not linked to Mars missions, right? So I went and Googled, in fact, space psychiatry and re- did some research on w- NASA's actual selection criteria and indeed those phrases don't come up at all because in fact NASA's usually looking for exactly the opposite qualities it's not looking for someone who can deal with constant loneliness, it's looking for people who can deal with being cooped up in a tin can with someone who's eating food too loudly for umpteen months right? So they're looking for first and foremost a good neighbor, that's literally the language from there from space psychiatry. And where so where then do you come across these phrases of constant stress and loneliness? Well you you get to these phrases when you if you google these phrases again or do a search in Google books, you come across them in business literature. And in in terms of getting employees to better deal with, or for you as an employee of self-help literature, to deal with the modern workplace, in particular, the digitized workplace. So one of the other things I refer to in this article is this 2013 incident where a man called Tout Le Monde, great name for a discussion of globalization, uh, grabbed headlines as a web Robinson Crusoe for voluntarily offshoring himself to an uninhabited island to demonstrate that workers can labor more or less anywhere. So I discuss in the article uh, the Guardian's response to this particular publicity stunt and hmm. noting that this is, of course, not necessarily something that many of us as inhabitants of contemporary digitized workplaces would actually want to sign up for. But the, the bottom line point is, that is just to show that what we are actually referring to, whether he's conscious of it or not, are these anxieties about the contemporary workplace, right? That the atopia that he's, the, the man made atopia that he's engaged with is the contemporary office place where you're subject to the stresses, the, the threats of being laid off of having to work in an atomized way, interacting with your computer, uh, and not necessarily with your coworkers. Maybe you've been, uh, you're in a cubicle, right? And you might also be subject to other more precarious kinds of work. So virtual work is one of the things that contributes to uh, loneliness and stress, the gig-based economy, etc. So all of the things that you and your listeners have been engaging with elsewhere in just... Watching the contemporary news cycle, these are for the phenomena that I think are really motivating. Weir's work in *The Martian*. So he wants to show someone who is engaging with these the a far more externalized threat, Mars. Right? We're now into the natural utopia, but doing so in a cheerful way because you know, God damn it, he's he's an American and he's someone who's an elite worker and he can put up with everything
0: yeah there's a a very i think as well the the of the whole idea of um kind of capitalism as this system of uh meritocracy where you know it's just if you make the right decisions then anything you encounter that can kind of be overcome that's you know that's all it's about in its its own kind of formation of of how it works that (laughs) makes a lot of sense when um you Yeah, when you, with that background that you've laid out, you know this whole thing of you know he gets laid off, but then he makes the decision to do this. This kind of self-made man thing. And That's something that comes through very strongly in the film, I think. Like this kind of valorization of, it's first of all, tied into that job market thing you said of like just you know having the the ability to do it, but also that it's just everything's just about you making correct decisions. Like that's how. If anything goes wrong, it's because you make the correct decisions. And if you make correct decisions, you can overcome anything. Uh, It feels like there's a kind of valorization of that way of thinking in the film.
1: Indeed. And of course, you already have everything to hand that you're actually going to need. And this is a problem that goes back to the original Robinson Crusoe, the original self-made man in a very, very early version of capitalism right, is that, you know, yes, he's very good at surviving on the island, but in part it's because, oh, he's got some handy dandy wheat seeds that have been thrown up in the island and have managed to plant themselves and he has the right tools to hand. And Of course, Watney in The Martian, he's another Robson Crusoe figure, he's got, he's certainly got to do some problem solving. And part of the great pleasures, I think, of the book and the narrative is watching him tackle these problems. But of course, mm-hmm. in part, he can do that because he's got the potatoes to hand, right, they haven't been destroyed, etc so he's this is a story of triumph that is set up with very particular conditions that can indeed be solved and of course he's never plagued with depression or anything at least that he shows us in the film um, that would get him in the way of his individualist triumph
0: Mm. so as well as this um, uh, what we've just been talking about in terms of the uh, the way we can read it in relation to sort of business culture and so on um another thing that you mentioned is uh colonization and i think yeah this is another thing where we're talking about what the film might valorize this whole this ties ties into what i was saying earlier this idea of like civilized man on like a march of progress towards the future that any obstacle can be kind of overcome with like uh you know scientific ability we can just find a solution to everything. This is how Watney continues to survive. He says, for example, I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. This is how he responds to problems. This is how he can overcome everything. But also in terms of colonialism, like he explicitly says that he's colonized Mars at one point in the film.
1: Indeed, right? So this is a callback to that Lockean property law I mentioned. If you put work (laughs) into the land, in particular a, a colony, the word literally comes from farm. So if you can manage to grow cro- crops anywhere, then you've colonized the place, technically. And so that becomes a joke both in the book and in the movie because at the same time, when when Watney says that, it's a joke and it isn't, right? It's, yeah. He's making yeah, yeah, a joke, yeah, sure. but at the same time, we know – and the, the script, the original ending of the script makes this clear when it refers to his footprints sort of stretching across – uh mars in this uh sort of robinson crusoe way sort of p- paving the path or showing the way for future colonization projects the, mm-hmm. in both the book and the film one of the implications is of hey if a single person can survive on mars then you know we're going to have martian colonies tomorrow right
0: yeah it, it doesn't say that but the, it's very clear the implication it, you're left after watching the film assuming okay he's managed to do that he's he's kind of pioneered a lot of stuff they can use so when the next mission comes and it is presented within the film story it is a series of ongoing missions yeah the clear implication is that the next lot can now go there and and, and indeed at the end he's uh teaching uh he's uh he's a teacher and he's teaching students like the next generation about space travel whatever so yes yeah, it's, it's there The the implication is they're going to go back and they can progress again, progress to the next level and continue to colonize it.
1: Indeed. Now, I add that the film, you know, in, in making the film, it's clear that both Ridley Scott and um, Matt Damon had some issues, actually, with just doing a straight transfer of the narrative, that they actually had some problems with the the kind of ideology that the book was unconsciously espousing. Um, in particular for Matt Damon, you know, he talks about how he doesn't think botany is is cheerful all the time. He thinks he's in in a workplace environment being observed all the time and therefore he's putting on a performance. And that was the way that Damon approached that plot um, and that part. And they also insert things in the script. For example, the moment where uh, near the end of the movie, if you've seen it, where Watney stoops down to cradle a blade of grass, I think that's growing through the stones, a sort of reminder of just how hard it was for him to grow things on on mm-hmm. Mars. That seems to me to be like this, this nod to the the environmental there is no plan B sort of rhetoric, a reminder of that, or at least an acknowledgement that actually neither, in the film at least, what I'm saying is that uh, the director is trying to not quite be as gung-ho as Weir is regarding the future of of space travel slash survival in, in hostile workplaces, that there's a little bit more tension and stress associated with this and a little bit more valuing of, of what we already have. I see the, the moment where Watney is cradling the, the plant on Earth as a it's sort of a nod towards the idea that, you know, we should maybe focus on saving this planet first before we try to save ourselves by colonizing everything else.
0: Hmm. pay attention elon musk
1: one hopes one hopes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um uh, yeah and not that i want elon musk to be involved in uh, saving the planet i think he should just go away but um anyway um the so there's a, a couple of questions that i was going to ask you that i think I'll, I'll kind of collapse into one um so what is it that you read uh ultimately what is it you read the martian saying in response to globalization and as a part of that um something else you identified there's a there's a very clear nostalgia for a previous era for the uh kind of apollo era where you know everyone was watching uh space launches across the world you know it was a bigger event like that that's very clear in the film so yeah um yeah, but what is it saying about response to globalization, and what is what part of it does that form this this nostalgia? Yeah,
1: you know, we all, we also haven't mentioned the role of China in the film or I'm in the. I'm
0: sure, book, yeah, that's really right? important, actually. Yeah,
1: it is right. I mean, one of the things that that does happen in both the book and the movie, which makes it part of a larger defense of globalization than just saying, "Look, the workers will be fine." Is mm. these moments where the global superpower China, right, needs to also contribute to the saving of Watney, right? So uh, on one hand, Watney is fine, uh, and America is still strong and can still save him, but also we can get along with China, the global superpower. And this very, this China, of course, just look at today's newspaper, right, uh, is usually presented particularly in the United States, as the threat to American workers, Mm -hmm. right? And here we have China stepping forward to voluntarily, at great expense to themselves, this is, I think, something that's stressed in the film, uh, save the struggling American worker who's trapped, who's lost in space or on a planet in this particular case. So we have that being addressed. So so superpower rivalry gets uh, addressed and, and solved in this film. And then also we have that alienation I was referring to earlier of, of working in digitized workplaces. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. and of course is something that goes beyond the workplace. There's an anxiety about how we're using social media all the time and staring at our screens and not being uh, attached to each other. Um,
0: or even being the, surveilled at work as well.
1: Of course. Well, there you go. There's Mark Watney being watched on Mars and therefore yeah. performing for the cameras. Yeah. But so we have these anxieties then also get addressed in these weird scenes. They didn't strike me as weird when I first watched the film in The Martian. And then, and in part this is because I'm a dumb phone User And then I, I got my phone upgraded and I was wa- re-watching the movie and seeing all these scenes where people are clustering around televisions, you know, in the streets, etc. And from what I recall there's not a single shot of in the, the movie The Martian of anyone watching the rescue of, of Watney on a phone. It's hmm. all this kind of hearkening back, as you mentioned, to the glory days of Apollo, the Apollo missions, and to this sort of this shared not only national, but of course in the film it's explicitly an international experience of everyone's, they're still watching a screen, right? Television is still a, a form of screen watching, but we're yeah. explicitly being shown this as being a kind of communal thing, and cell phones, the internet, aren't apparently, uh, are, aren't, on, aren't on display in that montage.
0: No.
1: Now, we also haven't talked about gravity yet, even though that's you know, uh, concern of the article and as a film by contrast with *The Martian*. But you were asking me where I see *The Martian* is settling, and so for me, I'd say that *The Martian* is an unabashedly uh, pro-globalization both text and movie. The the movie in particular in its defense of uh, networked communications and Chinese competition. At, it doesn't just defend them, it shows them as being essential factors contributing to the salvation of an American worker. Yeah. So that's where it stands. And gravity stands somewhere else, I think.
0: Okay, well, let's let's uh, move on to, to talk about gravity then. Um, so um, I think w- one of the, the interesting uh, observations that, y- that you had in the article was the, um, you talked about the kind of... Uh, backstory or rather lack of backstory of of the characters so so you were pointing out that's something that a lot of people criticized about the film like these characters seem to not know anything about each other and that doesn't make sense because they would have been preparing for this mission and so on and so forth but but you actually um identified that as, as like a, a a strength of what the film's trying to do
1: it's a feature not a bug to use mm. that language yeah So, yeah, so when Gravity came out, I mean, again, people clearly liked the film, but one of the things that both film critics and viewers, if you search the comments of sites like Rotten Tomatoes, you'll see them commenting on, is what they describe as minimal characterization, the lack of information that the film supplies regarding its characters, and audiences, as you mentioned, in fact, identified and complained about the fact that these characters don't seem to know each other, so... We've got Ryan Stone, who is the central character played by Sandra Bullock, and we have Matt Kowalski, who is played by George Clooney, and these are the characters that arguably receive the most development, even -hmm. though we find out virtually nothing about them, except at a crucial point in the film, we do find out that Ryan's daughter has died and that she's part of the reason she's in space is because presumably she's trying to escape her grief. And yeah. so the film uh, then becomes, her, her crisis in space then is very obviously metaphorically connected to a kind of isolation at home. But this is being tied into the issues we've just talked about in relation to the Martians. So it's being tied into the atomization experienced in Atopia, global man-made atopias and workplaces uh, and for people who are interacting primarily in digital ways as opposed to in face-to-face communication. So what I argue is that the film, in fact, is rather than, it doesn't try to explain away the fact that it's characters who've been training supposedly for this mission for months and months and end, don't know each other. In fact, it draws attention to the lack of their no- lack of knowledge about each other. So there's a recurring joke that Stone and Kowalski keep making about the fact that they don't know the color of each other's eyes. Right, So that comes back quite a few times. And crucially, that information I just mentioned about the fact that Stone's daughter has died is only something that that Kowalski and the audience learns when she's at the point of death. Right? Yep. So, And we see Kowalski's reaction at this point and it confirms that he he had no idea right he neither he nor Stone have spoken about their personal histories or motivations at all in all of their months of training and working together and what is also interesting is that then when Kowalski later sorry spoiler alert sacrifices his life to save Ryan Stone the the, the scene of uh, Stone reacts to his loss as he drifts away by pleading into the microphone for him to finish a personal anecdote that he actually had been relating earlier at the film. So she, as you know. She's asking for the end of the story. So he becomes this tragic figure who we never get more about him and why he's here. And and the, pers- the, the film is drawing attention to the fact that here was a personal anecdote that's never going to be finished. We're never going to find out more about him. So we realize that these characters have really not learned much about each other. They've only exchanged this very superficial information. And we, you know, along with the audience realize in that moment with Kowalski drifting out to space that Stone and uh, and as as the audience have never really got to know him. Right? So this is a, an element of the film. Now the fact that this disaster this disaster is also linked with social media and with communications technology, right? The spa- the, when the first piece of space debris flies past the ship, the beginning of the disaster, which is created by Russia's attempt to destroy one of its own spa- spy satellites, uh, Kowalski looks towards Earth and says, half of North America just lost their Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. So the surveillance and communication technologies that we were seeing in the Martian are here being destroyed or they're transformed into destructive forces that literally tear the astronauts apart we see people being sliced to pieces and killed by this flying space debris which has just been verbally associated with social media Mm -hmm. so i was mentioning earlier like the isolation that people feel on in networked workplaces and in their home life Um, Patrick Yagoda has argued that this is a sense of alone togetherness, which is thought to characterize life under neoliberalism. Now, it's true, I will say, hey, you know, social media does allow people with forms of social connection. So I'm not exactly, uh, you know, anti-social media. We're talking via the internet right now. That's great. But (laughs) at moments like this, you know, I think that at the same time i'm sure that we've all experienced that anxiety of of saying, feeling that we're also in some ways we're connected to people online but less connected to people on, in real life and that's part of what the, the the sorry gravity is engaged with
0: so yeah i think there's once you provide that context as well there's plenty of kind of uh there's plenty of things images from the film that people can identify that are kind of linked to that just the this idea of floating alone and these lots of scenes with kind of these cables that they're desperately trying to grab onto to sort of get a connection to another person and kind of pulling themselves together and losing over and over. So there's lots of kind of imagery that links into that.
1: So in in shipwreck narratives, again, this is something I mentioned in the article and at greater length in the the book that you mentioned earlier, you know, lines that connect people from ships to shore are called communications. So literally, uh, that is what, the word is. When people are, when Stone is flying away from her spaceship and trying to grab onto something to tether herself to it and grabbing onto a line, that line is a communication in technical parlance. So again, the ship is real, sorry, the, the story is really using this natural environment and these older forms of, of storytelling to to undergird some of its points about communication and alienation in the in contemporary global spaces. Now, one of the other sequences you mentioned the grabbing onto lines. Um, but we also just in the way that we had these these weird anachronistic scenes of in the Martian where people were gathered around a television to watch the news. We also have this this interesting conversational reference to older forms of connection so mm-hmm. some of your your the academics in your audience may have well have encountered Benedict Anderson's theory of imagined communities mm-hmm. so for people who are unfamiliar with this uh, he has this theory of nationalism in which he argues that among the many theses that he puts forward is that one of the things that Builds a sense of national belonging is consumption of shared communications, right? Uh, the newspaper. He he talks a lot about how the experience of reading a newspaper at the same time every day. He argues is really important for the growth of nationalism. And I think yes. and this is just a side note. Of course, it would be interesting for us to think now about all the concerns about how social media fragments nations right by by giving us all not a shared experience we're not reading the same headlines every day we're in fact mm-hmm. perhaps reading very different things so uh so i think anderson's theory is actually newly relevant to our own current national conditions but at any rate he argument he argues that that There's this media forged experience of, and the quotation is, simultaneity marked by clock and calendar, which is really important. So you know, it's not just that you're reading and therefore part of the same imagined culture, but it's also part of that belonging is knowing that everyone else in your community, in your nation is doing roughly the same thing at the same time. So... We have this really interesting conversation between uh, Ryan Stone and Kowalski in the film where he's trying to distract her from her dwindling oxygen supply. And he says, he begins by asking her about her personal connections. You know, is there a Mr. Stone? She says no. And then he asks her, so she tells him she's from Lake Zurich. And he says, well, what are the good people of Lake Zurich doing at eight o'clock in the evening? And she says, I don't know. And that's a really interesting moment in the film because, again, if you're clued in to Anderson's theory, she's revealing the depth of her alienation. She's not mm. part of this simultaneous shared community. She's not attached to place, right? It's Lake Zurich, her hometown. She doesn't know what everybody's doing. She's lost in space, quite literally. Yeah,
0: and and, it, uh, it reveals that she just uh, so she she tells him that she goes to work. And then she gets in her car and then she just drives in her car with the radio on and she just kind of drives around and then does it again the next day. Um, and are of course, one of the spaces you mentioned as, a, as one of these kind of, uh, one of these atopic spaces as well.
1: Indeed. You're connected to the globe, you know, technically, but you're not connected to each other. You're in your car by yourself driving. And that's, yeah, her only relationship the places that she mentions are her workplace and the roads in which she just becomes a figure in constant motion, uh, completely detached from fellow humans and from place. And of course she has she we know she's trapped by grief, but also in that moment when she's referencing her workplace and the roads, you know, in this context where people are being killed by shrapnel from the satellite that suppose is being associated with Facebook, we have that sense that her isolation and grief has been made that much worse because she's a member of the society in which we're not connecting to each other in the workplaces or in our home communities in the same way that we used to. We're all trapped in our atopia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yes.
0: So uh, Stone is kind of, uh, I guess, used is representing the kind of. Epitome of this condition, I guess you'd say, like being that she's kind of ultimately, uh, yeah, she's she's isolated to an to an extreme degree, and she's the person also isolated in space. So, can you could you talk a bit about maybe about what the film's doing in terms of the way she changes over the course of the film? So, there's a lot of repeating. Is that there's a motif of kind of rebirth in the film? So, from so there's a bit where she makes it onto the ISS where she kind of curls up into kind of a fetal position and spins around for a while. Um, there's a bit where she almost... She decides to kill herself and kind of almost dies and then kind of revives herself with a new... She kind of wakes up with a new attitude and outlook. and uh, there's, a, there's a bit at the end as well, which I'm sure we, we can return to, where, where she kind of... Um, crawls out of the ocean in a kind of evolution slash rebirth kind of moment as well. So yeah, this thing constantly repeats in the film. So maybe you could, could tell us a bit about what you see going on there.
1: Indeed. So we've just described, you know, Stone's problem, right? She's isolated on earth and now she's in space and running out of air and shortly going to die alone. And Let's face it, that's pretty bleak. But, uh, of course, the movie has a happy ending. Again, spoiler alert. And so what we see over the course of the film is her sort of recalibrating her relationship to humanity. And one of the ways that it's signaled is through these moments where she's saved by communications, right mm-hmm. uh, so we talked about literally the way that these ropes that she grabs on to save her and they're again in a shipwreck they're literally called communications mm-hmm. and we have at that moment you you just mentioned where she is where she so she's literally pulled back uh, say by a communication from kowalski and then her figurative communication that conversation that we've referred to now a few times uh comes back to save her when she later attempts suicide it's her recollection of that conversation so that earlier moment of communication that prompts her into a new attempt of at survival so then that then triggers the second part of the film where she gets reborn into a new form of communal identity so she's no longer going to be or she's moving away from trying to get out of the isolated state of the labor consumer who's uh occupying this, this atopic space in the global knowledge economy, but she's trying for something new. And to to get to the newness, I'm actually going to have to back up and turn to theory and to, to Spivak's definition of the planetary. So uh, some years ago, I think it's 2013, though I might get the, the date wrong, in Death of a Discipline, Spivak... Uh, famously tried to avoid the loaded politics of the term globalization by proposing the term planet to overwrite the globe. And what she meant by that, she said, was that when you talk about the global, you're talking about human systems, uh, the social, physical infrastructures that form our communications and trade networks, and mm-hmm. that we're very sympathetic to empire. Right? You already mentioned colonization Paul and I think it's important to remember that empire and and globalization are on this this continuum, right? One can develop into the other and perhaps yeah. even go in the reverse direction. We'll find out, I think. Yeah. But in speaking of the planet, then Spivak says, speak "Well, when speaking of there's more than one way to to connecting to other people who are in different countries than you." and to the rest of the world, right? The world doesn't just need to refer to the global. So you can also be thinking of the alterities identified with nature. So in human circulations of water and wind, and also of people, human subaltern, for example, whose unrecognized labors are so often identified with global systems, right? um so that's a, a a huge gesture there to the history of of empire and colonization but what i want to take from this at least is the idea that you can that there's also this concept of the planet as opposed to the global and the planetary is alien national natural systems that were pitted against in the martian right the in the martian nature is not on mark watney's side i mean except where it's under his direct control and the growing of of uh, potatoes, but in in Gravity, we have a very different relationship between the main character and the nature slash the planetary. And mm-hmm. first, first, this actually comes up in the religious imagery of the film. So if you've seen the film, you'll notice that there's a lot of uh, there are many religious icons that crop up, and they're not just from one religion. So we get a St. Christopher icon, but also a smiling Buddha that that stone encounters in the Chinese shuttles. So we're being reminded that, you know, one way of having a broader than national community and connecting with other people is via spiritual or religious practices. And the film is emphasizing in the background these sort of images of multicultural religious presence. Spivak also, by the way, observed that one of the traditional names of alterity or otherness more than humanness, of course, is God, right? So that's one way of getting beyond a very limited idea of what the human is we might be trapped in in our neoliberal workplaces. Mm. Now, the other one, however, I think a key moment happens when she manages to... She make a connection on the ship's radio. She's trying to work, and then she's she's for help, and she instead gets this AM radio enthusiast who doesn't understand English and she can't really speak to. Mm-hmm. So again, this is on one hand reinforcing Stone's isolation. Right, she can't communicate effectively for most of that conversation, but yeah. there are two moments of successful communication. Um, one is when she hears a cry in the background and realizes there must be a baby nearby. So suddenly, because she is able to, and she hears a lullaby, and so as a member of the human species, she's able to recognize this universal family construct in a song and understand what's going on. So this is one of her first two moments of understanding. And then the other moment is when she hears the barking of dogs in the background and asks the stranger to make the dogs bark for her. And she woofs at him and he understands her and they they join in this weird sort of woofing moment where they're using the language of a species that's not human to actually, again, successfully communicate. These are the only two moments when you see the other half of the conversation where both participants actually understand both the request and the, the meaning of their communication mm-hmm. with another human being. So – this is expanded on a short film, which shows the other half of this uh, this conversation, and it's uh, it reveals that the the person that Stone is talking to is an Inuit, who is also contemplating imminent death. He's has a it's not his own, but he is planning to uh, to kill one of his dogs, which is sick, and so he's having this conversation with her about the dogs and it's about it's in this moment about conversation with other species that we have this ground for common understanding so we then have you mentioned the, the scene at the end and mm. again strikingly at the end of the film stone crash lands on earth and she crawls out, and many people and reviewers noted that she her progress back to shore seems sort of evolutionary that she yeah. she decides to cast off her her astronaut suit in the water she needs to. and then she staggers back onto land as this four-legged mammal, and then finally stands back up and then she's again the standing human. Yeah. So the way I read this, Uh, As I go back to the script, um, before we we get her successful exiting the lake, and remember that, of course, she's she's still in an atopic environment, arguably, as was indeed the Inuit who was talking to her. He's in the Arctic, right? He's in this hostile natural environment. She's now trapped underwater in a lake, and she sees a frog uh, swimming up ahead of her, and that's what she follows out of the water. So she casts off her human technologically advanced apparatus and follows the frog out swimming like it does to the sea. So her relationship, again, as with the earlier conversation about the dogs, here it's again, it's an animal that shows her the correct way to get out of this situation. And it's her ability to recognize herself as a member of an animal as well as a human planetary community that ends up saving her. So One of the things I think that this film is gesturing towards is it's sort of articulating this hope that alienated human communities that have been fractured by globalization might evolve out of it by reconceptualizing our identity at the level of the human species. Optimistic, perhaps, maybe even utopian, but I think that that's a very different thrust to the film than we saw in The Martian, where, as you observed earlier, for the most part, it's about overcoming nature.
0: Okay, so... um so just 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 finally then so you clearly you you've, you've got two different readings there of these these two films um yeah we're talking about in one sense uh, kind of overcoming nature um these kind of uh, valorization of elements of capitalist ideology and globalization and so on and so forth gravity you suggesting kind of Goes beyond that, um, to an extent with, with these, uh, gestures towards like another mode of communication that we could build something from. But you, you, you did say that you still think they're both kind of fundamentally committed to the maintenance of, of globalization. So yeah maybe you could explain that a bit because we're talking about gravity sort of being a, perhaps a little bit more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Critical or? Uh, oppositional than Martian, but you're still kind of, you're still saying they're both kind of fundamentally supportive of globalization.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think the Martian pretty clearly a defense of globalization. And the gravity is much more critical and ambivalent. But that said, I don't find it as critical as potentially it could be, right? I still think at the end of the movie, what's implied is that we're, is that we can coexist with globalization. This is not a film that's, ca- that's calling us to you know, set fire to the streets and that's ushering in a new age of revolution. That's not this film. Instead, moments like the one we just described at the end of the film, these sort of turns towards uh, non-human forms of community and thinking at the level of the planet, um, it's still it's about strategies for survival and coexistence with globalization as opposed to a, a film that's arguing for something completely different.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's not insignificant on that front that, so early on in the film, K- Kowalski keeps, uh, he keeps communicating with, uh, I think he keeps saying Houston in the blind, because uh, obviously Houston can't see them, but he keeps communicating and telling them what they're doing. And uh, Stone like adopts that behavior after her kind of, uh metaphorical rebirth i I guess you say and when when she comes down to earth there's a moment where these um like signals start appearing in her ship like you can start hearing like radio frequencies and so on so there is a yeah i guess there is a suggestion of like kind of her reconnecting to that uh system before we get the uh the following scene that we're talking about
1: indeed that's a great reading um Thank you very much, because I think you're absolutely right. Uh, That does suggest, again, this is about reintegration and reorientation, right, survival strategies for dealing with the alienation of your workplace, as opposed to uh, a whole scale rejection of it. And one of the things, again, that we have to acknowledge is that both of these films are themselves the products of internationalized workplaces that are relying very heavily on international distribution systems. One of the reasons that the movie has got to be very positive towards the Chinese is because China's a big mo- market for Hollywood. Um, and also obviously Quaron himself is is you know is working with a very diverse and international crew and uh, cast of actors. So the the contemporary movie movie industry both of, is very internationalized anyway and is very much associated with and reliant on these global systems. So there's going to be a limit to the kind of critique that these major movies distributed by Hollywood are going to offer. Again, maybe if you if we were talking about movies from very particular national cinemas where people, we might get different kinds of portraits and stories, but With the politics undergirding both of these films and the the logistics, the practicalities that go into making them, it's very unlikely that you're going to be seeing a film that's adopting a burn-it-down, revolution-style argument towards globalization coming out of Hollywood.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think that's something that's really easy to get when you're kind of reading films and something that's really important to do is, yeah, think about the, the context in which they're being made and the, the, the systems in which they've got to exist and how, how things are inevitably going to kind of bash up against that. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's really important and really interesting. Um, okay. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming on and talking to me. It's been fun.
1: Well, thank you very much, Paul. I hope this was helpful, and I very much enjoyed our conversation.
0: Yeah, and uh, as we said at the beginning, if people wanted to hear more about, uh, or read more rather, about some of your thoughts on Atopia and so on, there's um, your book, *An Empire of Air uh, of Air and of Air and Water*. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. And yes, and, uh, yes, and of course, and I've, if you Google me, you can also find a website. And if people have thoughts on atopia and its connections to utopia and dystopia we didn't really talk about that but um they can feel free to email me or get in touch via twitter
0: okay and that's uh, at s i carol with one l
1: that's correct Cool. all right thank you very much paul have a great one thank
0: you okay so that is the end of my conversation with siobhan i hope you enjoyed this episode If so, um, ratings and reviews on whatever you use to listen to this would be very much appreciated. That will help me. It'll help more people to hear the podcast and help me to uh, keep growing it and keep doing it. And as I mentioned before, if you want to hear more from me, then check out patreon.com slash utopian horizons where you can get access to more bonus episodes. Um and yeah, as always, if you want to get in touch, utopian Pod at gmail.com, utopian horizons on Twitter and Facebook.com slash utopian horizons. Uh also there's a Utopian Horizons Discord, you, which you can find the link to. It is the uh, in the pinned tweet on uh the Utopian Horizons Twitter. Um yeah, thank you very much for listening and I'll be back soon with another episode. Cheers, bye-bye.